I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Am Kosky. I'm Dustin Kosky. And we love to watch. We love to watch as the Knight Rider. We love to watch as a fuel-injected suicide machine. We love to watch as a rocker. We love to watch as a roller. I am an out-of-controller. <laughs> <laughs> I am a Knight Rider, baby! And it's me! We you need the Marmaduke? <laughs> I, can't, I can't do the whole speech, I'm sorry. <laughs> And it's me and my Marmaduke, and we are never coming back. Join me for a ride. Speed up the music. Join me for a ride. Maximum overdrive. Join me for a ride. Speed up the music. Join me for a ride. Maximum overdrive. Can you believe that was one take? (laughs) I could do it again, guys. I could do it again. I promise. Well, then it'd be a second take. We don't need those. Those are garbage takes, Peter. The only thing that's uh, good is the pure first one. But hey, holy fucking shit. Uh, We're back with our guests who we will introduce in a second. Uh, Lifelong guests of the show for its duration. But even more exciting than that is a new month, Peter. Uh, so we'll get right to that because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, we're we're it's March. It's a new month for We Love to Watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around a theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And that remembering part is going to be super easy this month because all of the movies have the same person's name in the title. If you count the international title for the second one, uh, and that is uh, our month is March Maxness. Where we're doing something we haven't done in a couple years, where our theme for the month is just going through a series of beloved movies. And that series, for March Maxness, is Mad Max. So we're starting today with uh, Mad Max, then The Road Warrior, also called Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, uh, Beyond Thunderdome, and where I will probably come down as the best one in the series, Fury Road, because it's one of the best and things of all time. Not just best yeah, movies. Yeah, we usually don't do we usually don't do series run the series like this. We usually don't do director series either because I I usually like to cobble together uh, a bunch of movies made in different eras, maybe even different countries by different directors, different creators that uh, all feel connected in a certain way and kind of use those uh, those differences to sort of unite these movies uh, under a theme. For this, it's amazing because I feel like it still fits the bill because all four of these movies are very different. They're made in very different eras. Their styles change over time. Um, but there is a through line of George Miller's sensibilities through all of them. And George Miller's technical prowess as a filmmaker just screaming through them at an upward trajectory to the point where, yeah, I imagine Fury Road will be my favorite of the series. Uh, <laughs> but 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 it, like Fury Road feels like it's truly like... Um, Somebody who's honed their craft for decades is finally able to pull off something yeah. really insane. Yeah, it's the old saying. You got to do two happy feet before you can do your best Mad Max movie. Uh, <laughs> the classic <laughs> adage. The other thing that all these movies have in common is that the song Gary Newman Cars applies to all of them. Because mm. when Max is in his car, he feels safest of all. 
And as a matter of fact, in this movie, if his wife and his kid would have been in the car, maybe. <laughs> another, maybe turned maybe out. they would have just made it Another pertinent song is um, Life is a Highway. <laughs> that always plays in my head when I'm watching one of those <laughs> collisions <laughs> that Max is chickening his way into. <laughs> in fairness to our guest, one of our guests, Dustin Kosky, regardless of what movie he's watching, Life is a Highway <laughs> plays in his head because he wants to ride it all night long. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's, those are our guests. Our guests who, uh, prodigal sons of We Love to Watch. They, uh, I think probably are still up there in the record for most appearances or close to most appearances. I think eight or nine times. And then. Considering they haven't been on in a year, that's pretty impressive. Well, like a year and a half. It's, uh, it was like, uh, the summer we did, I forget what movie, but it was like summer of 2018. And then, uh, from my understanding, we didn't get the whole story. But they became, for a little bit, those apocalypse preppers, and they decided to, you know, test out their bunkers, see if their calculations of supplies would last for the 18 months that they were expecting it to. It did. They were fine. They both survived. Sounds like Adam got a little cold in the process. Uh, and maybe a cold. He was cold. Got a little cold. Uh, but they, they emerged uh, from their take shelter bunker and were like, what episodes you got coming up? <laughs> we <would> like <laughs> the guest. Well, being a Bernie Sanders supporter is, in a sense, being a doomsday prepper. <laughs> it's the it's like the second thing you said. You could you're just using this as like a, if there's any chance this stops Trump from getting elected, I'll be on your podcast. Well, I mean, Bloomberg is on every other media outlet, so I so we need to t- t- take what we could get. Oh uh, yeah, but Dustin Adam. Let let us know what have introduce yourselves. What have you guys been up to uh, besides eating rice slowly? Uh, we've been uh, mostly working for uh, top tens and switching from being corporate Democrats to far left Democrats. <laughs> um, Adam's mostly been grinding away at his job with the Eurofins Biodiagnostics. I've been working on a book with a guy named Jonathan Wojcik, also known as Bogleach, and we're almost done with that one. Yeah, I haven't oh. been too active in the creativity realm much, so I'm glad to have a chance to come on here. But he's been testing seeds, and that's more important than writing books and stuff. Like, yeah, Dustin, that sounded great, but Adam, give us a little science update. What's going on in the world of science? Uh, well, we're doing more hemp testing at my local place, so... That's, that's what they call it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like trying on sweaters? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's completely correct. (laughs) This is the comfiest sweater yet. Uh, Yeah, so we'll 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 talk more about the end. But yeah, do you want to talk a little more about some of those projects and where people can find it if they're if they're out yet, Adam? If they're not, then I guess we'll shut the fuck up and move on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't have much to update. Sorry. Uh, Okay. Uh, well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for joining us for this month. We are thrilled to have you on. Uh, this is an exciting month for us. As Peter said, we, we don't do run the series and that often. I feel like the last one we did, which would have been April of 2018, where we went through the kind of Burton era Batman movies, had a similar type of thing where they were they were not like cinematic universes or continuing stories the way a lot of like sequels are now. But really followed that, yeah, there's a guy named Batman, or there's a guy named Mad Max. Tell me about this Batman. Well, he's got a a villain called the Joker. Let me tell you, that guy. 
<laughs> he huh. had uh, quite the rough upbringing from the most recent movie I've seen. It's not very fun <laughs> or good. The, they're like they're connected in the sense that they have a similar cinematic vision. They follow the same character, but kind of everything else is up in the air. Like what they want to do from a continuity standpoint. Uh, but it's at the end of the day, it's Batman in Gotham fighting villains. And here we have Mad Max in the either pre or post apocalypse world. He's got his car and that's about it. And so it allows these movies to kind of stretch and bend and be flexible in a way that a lot of movies either a don't really take the opportunity to do or b just aren't able to do within the confines of kind of telling a more um, cohesive story and not that these aren't cohesive they just aren't designed to be the other thing i kind of want to note right off the bat is that so back in 2017 peter and i did an episode on a little movie called lethal weapon and then a few months later, we did a, <laughs> we did an episode on Maverick, and we spent a good chunk of the Lethal Weapon episode talking about uh, Mel Gibson and how he's a human garbage. And then on Maverick, we spent a lot of time talking about how on the Lethal Weapon episode, we had talked about how <laughs> Mel Gibson is a piece of human garbage. So we're just going to say this now. We have to do three Mel Gibson movies in a row. He is pretty good in these movies. He is a piece of garbage. If you want our take on Mel Gibson for this episode, for The Road Warrior or Beyond Thunderdome, please go listen to our Lethal Weapon episode or our Maverick episode. I think that's all that needs to be said. I mean, he is so completely overshadowed in this movie, in my opinion, by the eccentric figures around him. Well, and he's barely and the lead for the first half of this movie, like Goose is. But yeah, he's the he's the more uh, conventionally morally upstanding one. He's the one who he has way more wisecracks that are a bit more memorable. It seems like it's just part of Miller's initial um, sort of soft anti-cop, or at least very very hard ribbing of police officers that's established early in this movie like the fact yeah. that the first thing we see cops doing is they're messing around and looking at a couple having sex through the scope of a rifle <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're basically yeah, yeah. they're basically the droogs from a clockwork orange it's just they the happen the to be the hired two, by the government yeah, the two and they follow some rules become cops and then try to drown alex in a some feeding trough. And and they basically seduce Max into the lifestyle by giving him bigger and better cars, right? Like, Max isn't... Uh, yeah, the last V8 engine. Yeah, Max is not fucking uh, pulled in by some sort of sense of justice. Max is pulled in by a sense that uh, of importance and for toys to play with, which is, like, a really important part of this movie. Yeah. And why it's so fascinating as a first entry... Because the character uh, both evolves and doesn't evolve over the course of the movies. Um, no, he devolves. And, and, at, I'd say he devolves in this one, and he's somewhat conscious of it. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. This is kind of him stripping down to his like new walk in the streets of the apocalypse, baby. Like the last <laughs> vestiges of civilization are taken for him. But before we get into that, uh, this movie in more specifics. This is a big series and one that I feel like kind of kind of became because it kind of stopped its footprint in 1985 with uh, Thunderdome for 30 years kind of had that thing where it became a series that had some bad VHS dubs 
And it, for me, was one that, like, none of my friends in elementary school or junior high were talking about. It wasn't one till I started working at a video store that people were really like, oh, holy shit, you had to, you have to see Mad Max. And I think just kind of the, um, its separation from pop culture for 30 years made it something that, even though these were extremely successful movies with a big movie star and made a lot of money, something that people had to kind of discover a little on their own, especially if they're from, uh, you know, the millennial generation or, or a little bit, a uh, little bit younger than when these movies came out. I want to talk a little bit about our histories with the series as a whole. This is the first one um, that came out. Um, so I, I did watch this in college, Mad Max for the first time, and I, I actually got to watch him in order. And I was of the opinion that Mad Max was the best of the first three. Uh, I hadn't seen Mad Max in about 15 or 16 years. Uh, I have seen, like, The Road Warrior multiple times since then. So I will say, well, well, we can talk more about next week, whether that holds up. I haven't seen The Road Warrior in a couple years. But because I have seen The The Road Warrior more recently, I can say I'm pretty sure I was a little bit wrong. I think The Road Warrior is probably better than this movie. But I still really love this movie. And when I went to Letterboxd, uh, a couple very funny things seeing this movie and all the reviews. So Letterboxd existed in 2013, two years before Fury Road came out. So one out of 120 people that I follow that have seen this movie, I'm the only person that rated it five stars. And two... A ton of the reviews are from 2013, 2014, people catching up before Fury Road. And a ton of the comments are, I think this replacing Gibson with Tom Hardy is going to be a huge mistake. This movie is not going to be good. Uh, (laughs) So both those things are very funny to me. So I'm curious, like, I saw this one and was so enamored that the Road Warrior to me was a little bit of a letdown. And then I rewatched Road Warrior. Actually, when Maya was was when my daughter was born, uh, it was the f- like my first overnight where she was up all night, but was a week old. I watched the Road Warrior and then Thunderdome for the first time, and uh, liked Road Warrior more and loved Thunderdome. Was frustrating myself that I would ignored that one as the bad one when it's still really good. But yeah, watch it's it's funny to me in retrospect that when I watched them back to back, the first two, it was this one I had more of a connection with. It's it's I think I may be the only person that's had that opinion. So I'm curious your guys' uh, exposure to the series, how you guys watched them, and like what your general opinion of especially the first three movies was prior to Fury Road coming out. My opinion of the first one was uh, basically, wow, that is th- th- that's the a nut from which the mighty oak of Fury Road grew. <laughs> this, so very- you didn't see it till after, like, so you never right. saw this pre. Okay, yeah, it, it's it's really really asking to be disappointed in that way. I I mostly just heard, okay, this is somehow both a cult movie and a gigantic international hit. Um, yeah, the- uh, when it came out, it was the most profitable movie of all time. Right, uh, it did a hundred million dollars uh, worldwide on a three hundred thousand dollar budget, and then I saw the sequel and I thought, ah, that's what that's now that I can see growing into Fury Road, and then I saw Beyond Thunderdome and I said, oh no, George Miller's uh, schmaltzy kitty sensibility <laughs> is emerging with, with you those. See, so you're like, this is where Happy Feet came from. <laughs> <laughs> that's where, uh, yeah, babe, and. Um, Lorenzo's oils. 
Yeah, famous um, kid movie Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> it, it's it's kind of schmaltzy, isn't it? <laughs> I've never seen it. Oh, this was uh, I saw it at the wrong time in the wrong order to really appreciate what it was doing. That's kind of or did you want to comment or no? Go ahead. I was going to ask Adam. What about you? Okay. Uh, I also think I didn't see it in the best time. I think I saw it when I was like in middle school or so, so I wasn't really appreciating a lot of the different elements that went into the way shots are crafted and what Miller's going for. I think I saw like Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome on like TBS or something like some cable is my recollection. And then I think a little later I kind of did the library VHS version and watched in order because I definitely love wanted to have seen the movies in order so first question that comes up why didn't you invite dustin to watch any of these movies with you i don't i don't know if i would have gotten them at the time yeah i I mean like i've been young enough that i've gotten in trouble for encouraging him to watch them with me (laughs) encouraging his delinquency yeah that, that would come later i also went through a period where i was such a film snob so uh, when I saw the Knight Rider driving around and the pursuit causing so much damage, my brain would have been like, this is a bunch of car accidents, like in Smokey and the Bandit, and thus it is bad. <laughs> that is yeah, not I good movie th- making if cars are crashing a lot. <laughs> um, I like movies about cars driving within the lanes. Uh, these drivers are terrible. Uh, why didn't they hire stunt drivers who could, uh, you know, drive in a straight line? Um, why are they yeah, driving on the wrong is- side of the road? Why are they sitting <laughs> in the wrong driver's seat? I only like cars that speak in a different language or in black and white. I'm sorry. <laughs> Most good cars are not from America. You like dubs of uh, the Cars movies. No, you gotta have subs, Peter. I don't want to understand what the engine the noise. Movies. I don't I'm want to understand what the engine noise is. I want it to say on screen. Ruh, 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 ruh. <laughs> I've tried to make a Subaru pun, but it's just not coming. (laughs) Great. It's always good podcasting when people say that they couldn't think of a funny joke. (laughs) That's like like saying, uh, here are all the pieces to a chair. Why don't you make a chair? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I was in a similar boat to you two in that I saw it kind of out of order. And I... Definitely saw Road Warrior first, and my dad heavily encouraged me to be into that movie. And then I saw Beyond Thunderdome on TV. I also thought it was cool, but it was less badass because so much of it was absorbed with kids. And I was uh, the youngest of four. I've talked about this before, but I was the youngest of four. So I uh, liked to reject things that felt like they were aiming at children. Um, Because I thought, like, oh, that's kiddie stuff. I have to watch the stuff that my older siblings are watching. That this the Beyond Thunderdome kind of suffered because of that. I was like, what? I like the parts where they're in that creepy like fight arena, but (laughs) all this shit with the kids in the forest. I've already seen Hook. Like, so you liked Thunderdome? You got angry when they went beyond Thunderdome? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I like I like when they show a sense of restraint when it comes to Thunderdomes. I like to like to stay in the Thunderdome. Um, well, I like the master. I like I like the blaster together. I love master blaster. Master blaster outside the Thunderdome. Don't give a shit about him. Well, yeah, he has to run Barter Town. Who runs Barter Town? Sorry, I, I think the mic kind of master blaster. 
<laughs> Sorry, you're not going to be on that episode, so I had to give it to you. Um, right. So, um, but yeah, so I had a similar story, and then when I saw Mad Max uh, a couple years later, probably more in the the, the thriving filmdom uh, kind of era for me, like junior high going into high school, uh, when I was like just soaking up as many genre classics as I could, uh, I found it boring. Um, and I just couldn't soak in it. And the eccentricities I didn't find fun because I think at the time I was just looking for stimulation. And, uh, it wasn't until later when, like, my sense of, like, the majestic started to get, uh, developed more. And my set, my appreciation for technical styling started to get developed more that I could, uh, appreciate Man Max for what the hell it is and what the hell it does. And yeah, I'm, like way more of a fan of it now than when I was like in my action movie prime when I was like soaking up as many action movies as I could. Yeah, I think I think part of the reason I prefer this to the Road Warrior, which I did like the Road Warrior. This is uh, unlike the Batman series. This is that great series where all four of them are uh, very good to great. Like the the range between the best and the worst is is relatively small. Um unlike the the Batman movies specifically. And we've talked about this on the show before and it's weird but it's the i think the reason i liked mad max is somewhere in that same reason i liked the 13th floor over the matrix which was i thought the 13th floor was more interested in the mechanics of the world and the matrix was more interested in cool action shit which for me at like you know as a teenager I was more interested in the way that these, like, systems were in place than I was appreciating, like, fight scenes and stunt choreography. I was a little bit, we, especially when it comes to action movies, I was a little bit like, um, like Dustin said, that, oh, who cares about these car chases? Um, and it's not that I didn't care. It's just, like, I didn't get the same. I actually had to, like, get older to appreciate um, how much I enjoyed, like, visceral action scenes, be it... Uh, you know, fighting or shooting or cars driving and stuff like that. And uh, and Mad Max, I thought, was interesting because it is not a world that has fully collapsed into an apocalyptic wasteland. There's, like, these vestiges of society, but it has all these hints of, like, things have gotten bad. Like, there's more and more criminals that are just able to pop up. The police force seems more like, almost like guns for hire that just follow the toughest tallest guy even like the police station is ramshackle like there's clearly not necessarily a government in place uh or as as much as as we as we knew that there was one who's like maintaining like structures and stuff like that so i thought it was very interesting to see kind of an apocalypse on the verge of a full meltdown and like what that what that system and that society looks like people clinging on to the old ways while recognizing stuff like gas stuff like engines stuff like the police force and other things that they've used to kind of inoculate themselves from what was clearly coming due was 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 going away it's like the the last chance at civilization before it collapses. So for me, that vision of that world was just a was a something I hadn't really seen at that time, and b a little more interesting to me than just the pure kind of octane action energy of the Road Warrior, which is now just like it's a desert apocalypse. There's no gas. 
There's barely a civilization. The civilization that exists are in these like weird different uh, gangs that wander the earth fighting over the last remnants of gas. And for me, that was something I felt like I had seen before. So again, it's not like I disliked it. It's just watching them back to back when I was like 19, I just found Mad Max more interesting. And I think based on my scouring of the internet and a lot of other things, I am the only person on earth that has that opinion. I kind of agree with you in one sense, which is that like, because this movie is so stripped down and so bare. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten to appreciate more movies that are uh, appreciate the uh, less is more uh, quality. The, uh, you don't need to have a million zombies. You don't have to have a hundred cars crashing. You don't need to have a hundred uh, fucking guns to the face. Um, sometimes just like two cars on a highway shot well is, is great. Now we're so inundated with apocalypse stories that I agree with uh, whatever 17-year-old Aaron. <laughs> um, how old are you? 19. Uh, I was on my yeah, freshman year in college, yeah. I agree with uh, 19-year-old Aaron uh, Moore, and I actually connect this movie with a movie that's clearly riffing on it directly, The Rover. Um, It's one of my favorite uh, movies of the past decade. Um, That movie, and then another movie that's directly ripping it off, but uh, more closely to the era, um, Dead End Drive-In. Oh, yeah. Both of those movies are movies that, like, I adore, but, like... I had to watch twice because the first time I watched them, they, this sort of half-apocalypse, this pre-apocalypse almost movies, uh, I, I had to watch them twice because, like, the first time I just spent the entire time thinking about the lore and the world building and, like, what is this, what are the implications of this? Like, what bad stuff has already happened? What's about to happen? What structures still stand? What are what are kind of propped up by, you know, just, uh, just... Uh, just kind of puffed up with gas. What, what structures yeah. actually have, have teeth still? We have so many Walking Dead inspired riffs now that um, just straight up everything's gone style movies can uh, often just feel like, well, yeah, I mean, I've seen the movie where they go and they kill another dude, they kill people over cans of beans. Like I've seen that movie, right? Yeah. But I haven't and seen I, the movie where someone's like, someone's like arguing with like a government lieutenant about whether or not they're arrested. And the government guy's like, I don't know, man, I just, I fill out the paperwork. And then like they get away from the cops and it feels like no one will ever hunt them down <laughs> because it's just too wild out there. Yeah. Um, this, this sort of, and, and I think that, this kind of half apocalypse hints at the, what the pre post apocalyptic genres roots actually are, which is westerns. And westerns are about the sort of half lawless, uh, half lawful uh, world. All three of those movies, none of them explain the world, right? <laughs> like you, you have to figure out that maybe, like, because there's a li- all of those take place in Australia, so there is a little bit of like. Is this just Australia? Like, do they not have rules? <laughs> like, do they not have taxes that are really um, that are paying for stuff? And then, like, you slowly get a sense when people say stuff like "last V eight engine on on Earth" or this dead end drive in where there's like, well, they start talking about how there's not really cops to come anymore, and that people are just like surviving in this and um, all the stuff in the rover that I'm forgetting specifically. But you kind of just have to figure out. That that's the case. And again, comparing it a little bit to The Road Warrior, I didn't dislike this. And I think it's important to kind of bridge the gap from the movies. But The Road Warrior does start with a big framing of uh, nuclear war. People are fighting for gas. The apocalypse has happened. 
And again, I don't think that's bad, but when I was comparing it to Mad Max, it was like it was so much more interesting the way they let the audience know that things are a little bit different than the Australia that you know, where there's like slightly less biker gangs and maybe three V8 engines. I do like, though, that there are still 18, even when there's supposed to be this gigantic gas shortage around that's causing society to collapse, um, there are still these 18-wheelers just driving along like they don't have a care in the world and nothing is out of the ordinary. Well, with gas, though, how else are they supposed to get the gas that they do have left? Yeah, I know, but it's like, yeah, the, the gangs are getting all big and out of control, and the police are also getting out of control, and yet there's sort of still a substantial labor movement where people who are actually good for things instead of just killing each other, they're just, they're still getting by. Or at least they're trying that they're just going through the motions, thinking, you know, the dog in the middle of the fire thing. This is fun. It's also like the idea that, um... In uh, a global warming situation, uh, the rich and corporations are going to be the ones who pay pay their bill last, right? Like, it's going to be poor people, working class people who uh, don't have money to drive their own cars, but um, bus for their... Or, uh, gas for their their semi to ship goods from you know one city to another like corporations will foot the bill right they'll just charge exorbitant prices so like to me that's even more just like world building to me that like the people who do the the idea that the people that still have gas are like maybe corporations and government people and i think when we envision apocalypses or like that kind of like death of society as we know it we picture a big event and everyone at one time mutually agrees that society is over Right. Like, oh, yeah, like most major cities are destroyed in nuclear explosions. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be a fight for your life zombie type apocalypse situation. I'm going to go hoard food and kill my neighbors and all that fun stuff like the you don't usually see which all three of the movies that Peter called out mention this kind of like people slowly deciding that, oh, I guess society is barely there anymore and I'm going to opt out version. Yeah, but th- throughout the Mad Max series, people with skills uh, always can get by to an extent. Like, you always have people that are making, th- that can get some authority and station through m- making power out of pig shit. Or <laughs> <laughs> or you always have uh, guys who can fly, they could carve out a niche. So, uh, <laughs> it's kind of what Mad Max proposes, kind of a neo-feudalism, which is from <laughs> the fall of... Where, like, the guildsters and the craftsmen, uh, you can't get rid of them. So, probably Toe Cutter <laughs> is going to... Fu- probably Toe Cutter, as he... If he grows into Immortan Joe, or if he could have, because he, someday he probably start... Th- if he's going to become one of the warlords, he's got to start collecting, like, a mechanic. Like, the actual... Like, it's implied the gang has a mechanic yeah. that they hire. So, he'd get a few of those guys... And he'd start getting some people that could do some of the things necessary for civilization so that he can expand out his gang. I think it's clear that the first thing that actually goes is like, I'm not going by Greg anymore. I'm toe cutter now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm done with these these Christian names. (laughs) I like cutting toes. My name's Toe Cutter. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, that's just 
that's more just Australia. I mean, the main character's name is Max Rockatansky, and yeah, his kid a- <laughs> is named Sprague Rockatansky, which sounds more like a Vulcan name. And also, when they drive around, not only do they not have a car seat, they throw them in the back of a station wagon going off-roading, and there's a loaded shotgun back there. <laughs> oh, oh! there's even a scene where Sprague, uh, who uh, may be a toddler, he's just playing with a revolver gun that's like as big as he is. Yeah, I got the sense that for... I got the sense they gave him an unloaded gun, and they were just like, that's a toy, right? Again, it is very hard to tell what's Apocalypse and what's Australia. He just <laughs> needs to revolve and protect himself from, like, nine different uh, super venomous spiders. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, and this movie is made by George Miller is a... Yeah, let's talk uh, a little bit about George fucking Miller. fiend. You can tell just watching the movie that he, there's like a pornographic satisfaction to his love of cars, um, and it gets and it's it obviously gets into the sound design, it gets into the way he shoots the cars, and it gets into the way that he um, treats cars as these like objects of incredible power and prowess, and that guns are part of the story, but really cars, cars, cars in a way that's uh, would would precipitate. Decades of action movies. Not campers, though. Those just get plowed right through, and it's fun when they <laughs> kind of explode. <laughs> campers that are made of, like, aluminum foil. <laughs> like, it's insane. But yeah, uh, George Miller, interesting fucking guy, right? Oh, Have yeah. you guys ever seen um, the documentary Not Quite Hollywood? Yep, by um, Mark Hartley. I have not, unfortunately. I have heard of it, but I haven't seen it. it it's basically like, um, what... Electric Boogaloo for Australian movies. Oh. Yeah, for Ozploitation movies. And it is one of those movies that gets you, like, revved up to watch 30 movies, and, like, 10 of them are unavailable because they're showing all the best clips, and then five of them, you're like, oh, that was just fine. I just saw all the best clips in the documentary and got excited. <laughs> um, I got the but, from watching the trailer to Mad Max. Like, it's yeah. everything that's uh, exciting about it. But... It, I mean, I did, like, that's how I heard of a few movies, including Turkey Shoot, which we did on this show, why I ended up, like, seeking out Next of Kin when it was in theaters, who was directed by the same guy I did uh, Dead End Drive-In. Uh, so, some some really good movies that came out of this, but really, like, when you're watching that documentary, you see, like, George Miller and Mad Max is, like, the centerpiece where that was the breakout. Like, that was the huge one that came outside of australia and brought like a lot more attention to australian actors and directors it made mel gibson a movie star it there's other directors like peter weir who went on to like well he wasn't part of that same exploitation like the kind of renewed focus on like oh australia is like developing their own like style of filmmaking and it's worth starting to pay attention to like as much as like you know Picnic and Hanging Rock and The Last Wave got a lot of critical notices. It is Mad Max that kind of brought the spotlight there in the way that, like, a lot of these great filmmakers and great films started to get noticed and highlighted. And I think part of it is just, A, Australia is a really cool place to shoot. It, You know, it's it's so funny because, like, some of it kind of looks like it could just be shot in Nebraska, but it still looks different enough that it looks super cool, even when you're just looking at, like, planes. I wonder if he had more money, he would have uh, left all of the more, uh, all sorry, all of the more wooded areas and whatnot and went and shot in the desert or the outback. 
Well, he did just, you know, 40 years later. Right, but my point <laughs> is, like, for this first one, did, oh, okay. he, did he want to evoke that more Western feel? But it's like, when you're making your student film, you have to go shoot out in the woods or out in, like, pleasant grassy areas just because it's too hard to drive out to the desert. Yeah, I guess regardless, though, it does work better for this movie because, like, I like that it goes from, like, wooded areas, like, a, a little more of a civilization feel uh like you know there's a spring and they swim and like by like mad max it's like you know barren fallout wasteland and i Um, like the i like the contrast because uh it speaks to what the movie is the max's domestic life is peaceful and seemingly um charmed mm -hmm. and uh he seems to be clinging to this life but he's getting seduced by the road and seduced to the road by the police force um and then eventually he becomes bonded to the road uh via revenge and so that sort of contrast between these like uh these these bucolic sort of beautiful forests and the way violence rips into them uh in an unexpected fashion uh later in the movie is just uh I don't know, it, it, it might have been a necessity of budget and what locations were available, and it might have also been a necessity of, uh, or it might have been, uh, you know, an intention, but the way that the movie sort of balances out these, like, dead highways and these, like, lush forests is, is was something that was very compelling to me on this recent watch, but never before. Yeah. So really getting back to George Miller, and then we'll dive into the movie uh, even more. Uh, he's directed nine movies. He's been directing for 35 years. Like, he he doesn't have a lot of producer credits besides, like, the big one, which is Babe, which he wrote and produced, and then obviously directed the sequel. He has, like, a few other Australian movies that he kind of lent some help with, like uh, Dead Calm being probably the most famous of those, which is an awesome movie featuring our boy Billy Zane, not Dean Cain. Dean Cain is not welcome in the Dead Calm uh, world or anywhere else. And Sam Neill somehow being the unsuspecting husband and yet not seeming like a pushover. Yeah, it's like the only Sam Neill movie where he's not possessed by Satan at some point and becomes the bad guy. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, nine movies. Four of them are Mad Max movies. Two of them are Happy Feet movies. Uh, And then there's three other movies. Like, he did the best uh, section of the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, but that's, you know, he only did the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is great in the one from 1983. But then he does Lorenzo's Oil, which I have not seen. Babe Ping in the City, which is great. Both those Babe movies are amazing. Uh, and Witches of Eastwick, which uh, the only person I know who really loves it is Brandon Lede. But I also have not seen that one. His career is insanely diverse. It's not like a um, Walter Hill where... It feels like he's kind of riffing on a set of themes over and over and over again. It feels like our, uh, George Miller was like, I'm going to I'm gonna go over here. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over here. Oh, my kids want me to make these fucking uh, Penguin movies. All right, I'll make that. Well, like, Adam, you found out that he was like, a, he was a surgeon or something? I, he worked as a emergency room doctor, or at least that's what I read for a while, and that was supposedly part of his inspiration for... Looking into since he would get automobile accidents and that, so protein. So I guess that means he had. Oh, so I guess that means he had like a real passion, and uh, he had already established where he might be going in life, and he sort of stumbled into directing. So maybe it wasn't so much. Maybe it's all a result of him not 
necessarily knowing movies, like not knowing what kind of movie maker he would grow up to be, or maybe he made Mad Max in the crazy way he did because he didn't know so much that's not how you make movies. Hey, I mean, he has a very consistent level of quality, but it is rare that, like, someone makes almost 50% of his movies in one series. Uh, And, like, I did some checking. Like, it really just seems like he... And I guess maybe it's not, like, maybe it's an Australian thing, too, because I feel like Peter Weir did this, too, where it's like, yeah, I'm going to make a movie, and then six years later, I'm going to make another movie, and then five years later, I'm going to make another movie. Like, I'm in no rush. <laughs> like, maybe because there's not as much of a Hollywood system that's beating down your door and giving you 30 scripts and people trying to convince you that, like, if you don't make another movie, you're fucked. I don't know what it is, but I do think it's, at, at the very least, like, interesting that it never feels like he had trouble getting work. Like, a lot of these, like, genre, horror, like, uh, exploitation movie directors we talk about is, like, they made eight movies because their second one was a hit, and then their fifth one was a flop, and now they're doing straight-to-video movie. It always seems like he was able to uh, attract a good cast. He's had, like, hits throughout his career in the 80s and the 90s. In the 2000s, like, he just kind of took his time and found a project or something he was interested in. It's, and then, like... He bugs out when he's, he bugs out when things get hairy, right? He was involved in uh, the Dark Justice League movie for a period of time. Oh, yeah, that's right. other big projects. And uh, similar to Guillermo del Toro, as soon as uh, things get uh, unsexy for him, he, he, like, he's like, I don't don't really want to do this anymore (laughs) well i i had heard that making witches of eastwick was a nightmare for him because he hated this because the studio system was really bad for him yeah i mean that makes sense he's working with jack nicholson mel gibson became a, a, a a movie star post lethal weapon like he never really worked with mel gibson in like full on superstar mode like beyond thunderdome was 85 like he was no one but he wasn't like like in that he wasn't like, a marquee name yet no he wasn't in the stratosphere where all you need is mel gibson uh and you can open a movie so yeah but jack but but yeah witches of eastwick is really his one like because it's, it's not just jack nicholson but it's also Cher, susan sarandon michelle pfeiffer like a lot of big names that I'm not saying were good or bad to work with, but I can understand that there's a level of probably stress and a lack of control that he wasn't as used to. And and honestly, like, even though only four of his movies are Mad Max movies, five of his movies are about the fight for oil. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lorenzo's More than oil 50%. is about someone stealing Lorenzo's old oil. He's yeah. got to get it back. I assume it's a Mad Max uh, movie in name only, except the name is Lorenzo and he's fighting for oil. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Cage is in it. We're going to steal Lorenzo's oil. I think it's Nick Nolte. <laughs> Same voice. We're going to steal Lorenzo's yeah. oil. <laughs> Give me some of that oil. It's the apocalypse. <laughs> you have oil. And I have oil. I drink your oil. (laughs) I quit hogging the oil. (laughs) My name's Lorenzo. (laughs) Back off, toe cutter. Uh, yeah, alternate casting that never happened. I'd like to see Nick Nolte play Mad Max back when he was the sexiest man alive. But 
we've already started talking about it a lot, so let's really get into it even more. Uh, are you guys ready to talk about the movie that made Max so mad? Frickin' cheesed off, man. Cheesed um, off Max would have been a better title. I agree, Peter. Jeez. Uh, okay, let's do this thing. Taglines. Road Warrior Beginnings. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, sidewalk Warrior. <laughs> Where the streets uh, are paid I, with Motorcycle Man. I feel like he's like content Max for more of the movie than he's Mad Max, right? I don't know if I'm going to remember to say this, but I got to say this. Yes, he is content Max for a lot of the movie, and he has two styles. One is Leather Daddy, and two is Yacht Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do feel like his one happy moment that he has in this movie is when his family dies, when he's like, well, at least I'm fucking done with being the Yacht Boy. I'm going back to Leather Daddy, because there's no reason he needs to switch back to his other clothes to go kill them all. Like you think, if you want revenge, the first thing you're not thinking as a, of is a is a costume change. But yeah. he, but he, it's not like he's riding a motorcycle. Well, like oh, this is more aerodynamic. Like he's in a car, it's fine. But he's like, <laughs> he's like, well, at least I'm getting out of this fucking yacht shit that my wife made me wear, and I'm going back. <laughs> and I'm gonna kill all of them, and I'm never gonna take off leather ever again in my entire life. And that turned out to be true. Do you think he'd be less desperate for water in the sequels if he wore less leather? Uh, yeah. While I'm in the blazing hot outback, I'd better wear all the leather I can. <laughs> Those there's a shot Black. of uh, uh, there's a shot of uh, Max. I wish you say Mel Gibson. Max uh, standing in his kitchen in tight leather pants, and uh, it's uh, incredibly sexy. Uh, it did a lot for me. Um, and it it but it was a moment where I was like, that's. <laughs> That's grossly impractical, buddy. Like, you're looking good for the bar, but, like, I don't know, I don't know if you're looking good for, like, uh, uh, I don't know, doing vehicular manslaughter. Here's the, here's the final thing I'll say, and then Peter does have to do the plot recap. But uh, you, I saw this movie, and I'm like, oh, Mel Gibson must be one of those, like, movie stars that's, like, they always shoot him to be tall, but he's, like, 5'6", like a Tom Cruise. Because compared to everyone else in this movie, Mel Gibson is tiny. And he's, he's a not baby boy. He's five ten, which is not like tiny. Everyone else towers. Yeah, everyone else towers over him, which just means like he's like Australia is filled with giants. Um, <laughs> because like you see this in like all his other police people, the captain, everyone's like a foot taller than him, and I was like, oh, he must be tiny. He's not tiny. He's fine. Like so, in that I, one that- specific area. Australian men are, uh, it says, Australian men are on average uh, one and a half inches taller than Americans. It's uh, five feet, 10.5 inches, and Americans are, American men on average are five, 
five feet nine inches. Well, Mel Gibson was born in America, so that makes sense. Yeah, and this <laughs> lines up. In this falling apart society, it makes sense that uh, the chief would be the tallest one, and that's like half of his authority. <laughs> the, the other <laughs> half of his mustache. authority is that he waters his plants in just a <laughs> scarf, leather, and leather pants. And that's when he does most of his heart-to-hearts. Come okay, in! Let's be honest. Let, let's be honest. If you saw that guy, and you'd be like... He's probably the boss, but then you see that guy wearing a scarf and watering plants and still barking orders past that. Just a scarf. You'd be like, absolutely, he's the boss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it also it also kind of like like who knows if he was the chief before the rumblings of this of the apocalypse, but after like all the infrastructure and the mayor crumbled and everything else, he's like, well, clearly I'm going to be the boss now. (laughs) Yeah, he's (laughs) see my mustache. Fifi is the one who becomes Immortan Joe. Why not? Why not? (laughs) So uh, Mad Max is about a pre-apocalyptic scenario uh, where uh, uh, the land is lawless and cops kind of have impunity to chase down crooks in high-speed chases and more or less murder them, Um, uh, which is not unlike our modern system hold on um but the uh the, the takes place in the uh not australian outback but sort of like a rural australian area era eh, area and uh, max rakatansky has a wife and a child and he's sort of being pulled away from uh the job by uh the safety and comfort of his happy home life uh and he's getting pulled towards the road towards this job by his boss and uh you know government work who are budgeting to basically keep their best cop on the road the guy who is uh seemingly unafraid he starts the movie kind of um already awesome um he's already like a wanted item uh and so as the movie goes on we get introduced to a head villain called toe cutter and toe cutter has a gang that uh is full of weirdos (laughs) and one of those weirdos is the knight rider and uh, the Knight Rider is uh, starts the movie. The very beginning of the movie, you get to meet the Knight Rider going on a high speed chase, and Max, uh, through his efforts, um, kills the Knight Rider uh, in a race. And so while they're all celebrating, Toe Cutter is planning revenge. Toe Cutter is introduced. He's seen sort of going on the road, causing mis- causing mischief. <laughs> he gets up into some real, real trouble. Um, murdering assaulting women uh getting up to it and we learn that his gang essentially uh, justice is incompetent to stop him um and eventually uh toe cutter's gang starts to target one by one everybody that uh is in the police station who a police force who um you know they see as responsible for the death of knight rider and uh they uh <laughs> Sorry. They start with Jim Goose. <laughs> they start with Goose. Uh, the Goose gets real loose. And uh, <laughs> then they go after Mad Max's family. And uh, that makes them real mad because they succeed. Uh, they murder Max's wife, his child. And then he becomes a fire elemental. He becomes this this rage, uh, this uh, ghost rider, if you will, uh, who takes his paints his car black. Goes and chases down uh, Toe Cutter's gang, kills them one by one, getting revenge on uh, each member of the gang, and walks off into the sunset with nothing to lose and only his car and the road. Yeah, before he becomes the first Jigsaw from the Saw movies. 
Yeah, that's everybody what, yeah, ripped that's... the ending. Uh, you can either saw through the the metal, or you can saw through your leg thing off. It is saw, interesting that Watchmen. besides, yeah, it is interesting that besides the one guy who is his life is immediately threatened by uh, where he's coming towards him on the motorcycle, and he shoots him with a shotgun. Like the other people that he kills are more uh i don't want to say like it's not murder to do what he did with the guy <laughs> with the bone saw but there, there, there's some sort of like sporty element to it like there's are you are you went, chicken enough to just drive your motorcycle into my interceptor or yeah do you value your, your life enough to saw off your leg it's like he wouldn't get first degree homicide it would be second degree or maybe first degree manslaughter depending on but like it is a that's little, another thing to note quick here like he um, doesn't become fucking charles bronson and death wish that's another thing to note here is that because this is such a lawless land uh there's no uh fucking uh retribution coming down the line from the police he yeah, has just he, become he is the police. this he is the police. He has just become this element of rage. And in a sense, you can feel uh, with Max's uh, sort of stability collapsing, you can feel the collapse of the entire uh, the entire world. Like, it feels like Max was, like, the last good guy. Well, it feels like all the cops are doing that, right? Like, this idea of, like, it's so funny when they, um, so they do arrest the guy who, like, was involved in, like, uh, I forget what his, what's his name? Little Little Joe? Who's the, yeah, sure. who's the who's the who's the bone saw? Johnny guy the boy. That, is that it? What is it? Johnny boy. Johnny the boy. I think Johnny. Yeah, he's so, uh, not a full fledged member of the group yet. Yeah. So and he gets arrested at one point, and they put him in the the jail. Well, they abandoned him. Yeah. On a chair because he, he was so fucked up on gas fumes or whatever. And they put him in the jail. I get the sense, sorry, no, I get the sense that he's he has fun going through the justice system and getting a public defender and getting off on his charges because he knows his gang will make it so nobody testifies against him. That's a well, game they're playing. But I, I think you say public defender like there's a justice system. When the chief comes and says why they have to let him go, he says, no one showed up in the town gathering to accuse him, so we have to let him go. Which sounds like the justice system has degradated to like all right come out and then you point to him and then yeah we're gonna keep him in jail or murder him or like there's no public defenders there's no like trial there's no judge he's provided he's provided that the 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 poindexter the nerdy guy he was like holding all those papers and he's pushing them all in he's like he's a that that's that's one scene straight out of like a death wish movie where there's like uh oh the the public defender is coming in to defend some scum yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I did forget about that. But there's the way they still present it is like it's not like society that we know, but like uh, a, a a version of it they've cobbled together with remaining parts. Like they're not going to the courthouse; they're going to the town square to see if anyone points at them, and if not, they have to let him go. But like anything else, it feels like they're the the police in this in this movie are like trying to maintain that level of law and order and societal norms that have that a lot of people have realized have started to crumble which is why the gang keeps getting bigger and bigger it's like society's not going to protect me the police aren't going to protect me like i'm just going to like this the more of us on motorcycles with lead pipes is going to protect me 
yeah, and um, you get the sense that it's it, that's like I was saying earlier. Um, the the post apocalyptic um the post apocalyptic genre is heavily inspired by westerns. Yeah, and this is super a western. We're like. Um, there's a they have to bring in a big city dork from the, a big city dork lawyer and he like comes in and he's like all disgusted by the habits of the small town uh you know underfunded sheriff and then uh, the basically the big city lawyer is like tells him like from the I don't know the DA's office for the state or something and he's like uh, you gotta let that guy go, and you're like, why? Because no one will testify against him. Like that yeah. feels stri- that either feels straight out of a Death Wish movie. Um, or it feels straight out of a western. And it's, you go to either one. Uh, and, and it's like the stubborn sheriff too, where it's like, "Look, I'm the sheriff. I have the star." And someone's like, "Look, the whole town is run by Big Hat McGraw. Like, no, <laughs> like you're a guy with a gun, you fucking idiot. Like the the there's there's eighty people with guns ready to shoot you if you if you piss them off. So why are you acting like the star protects you? Like that is." Right out of the Western. As we see, like, the cops are powerless to stop this gang, which is why, like, one of the reasons Max quits after Goose dies, where he's like, well, you know, his, like, speech about, like, we need to do what you, you're a police officer and we need to protect this. And he's like, yeah, we could do nothing to protect him. Like, I'm going to go live with my family. This is over. Like, society yeah. is over. And you get the there's a there's a true tragedy to this movie where like you feel like yes society is collapsing but Max could have eked out a, a good life and kept his family safe um, if it, if uh, the road hasn't hadn't you know seduced him back. Well, I think it's more all on toe cutter <laughs> and his gang because yeah, the road but... only seduced him back when they chased him. Uh, yeah, but Max is Max is directly so... responsible for killing. Night Rider, which you know, Toe Cutter is going after him for that, oh, right? On. Like, no, I mean, directly, that, he that. ran into a gas tank. Yeah, Night Rider <laughs> crashed on his own. I mean, okay, Max did his little chicken thing with him, but it, Night Rider still just kept driving instead of pulling over to the side and pissing his pants and all that, like a like a good boy. Yeah, I just get I just get the sense that Max is while not responsible for what happened to his family because that's uh, fucked up morality. Um, Max yeah, I don't I don't res- think he's responsible, but, he's, but he is. But he but his uh, his attachment to a certain kind of lifestyle um, and his inability to not be seduced by fast cars and excitement, uh, though within the confines of you know ostensibly the good guys. Um, ostensibly the last uh, last pieces of uh, society right his his attachment to to the road and into this this life of excitement is what uh put his his family's life in danger and ultimately um caused him to end up only having the road in the end so i i gotta say like i'm not trying to be difficult or turn into a weird like peter and aaron argument episode but I just, I don't get that reading from this movie. Like, the second things get difficult, he quits. He seems kind of fine quitting. And he's just going to go off. Like, there's never a point where he's like, maybe I should go back. Like, he really is just, let's go up north and we'll go on a vacation. And let's figure out what we're going to do. And we'll get the other car. And we'll, like, like, it doesn't feel like there's a seduction of the road. He quits halfway through the movie. And he's done. And the only reason... He, he tries qu- to quit way earlier, though, and you can tell he's tried to quit again and again. He was trying to quit when they handed him the V8. 
Yeah, that part, I mean, he definitely keeps coming back to it, but I guess I don't... Like, in later movies, he's a little bit more like, my life is the road, and that makes more sense. I just, I feel like he's... I I don't feel much of the seduction of the road stuff in this movie. He does like his new car, and I think he likes being a police officer, but I don't know. Like, I just, I don't... I'm interested just to hear more about that, just because I, I don't... I've never really gotten that from this movie. No, I never think... Talk- to- oh, sorry, go I, on, Dustin. I think as soon as Toe Cutter and his gang rape uh, somebody and her... I don't know, a couple, the man and the woman, and it's yeah. not played as a joke at all, I think our sympathies are supposed to swing, like, 100% behind Max. Yeah. And, oh, okay, 100%. maybe to- maybe Toe Cutter still says some entertaining things, but... I, I don't think there's even an attempt to make him sympathetic from there on out. So I no. don't think I don't think it's so much tragic that I, I think it's all on Toe Cutter that he goes after Max, who was just trying to get a dangerous person off the road at the time. I mean, of all of the things that happened in this movie, I'd say the stopping of Knight Rider was one of the most justified, considering he'd already killed a police officer, although that was off screen. But that's the point, though, right? It's like it's justified to us as people that uh, want uh, some semblance of society and we want good cops um, and we want good uh, we want good policing and we want uh, good safety and we want, uh, you know, bad people to be protected from us. But like the fact is like Matt, we're the first thing we learn about Max is that he's tried to quit again and again, and they have to keep pulling him back in and keep pulling him back in, which is like, uh, it's, it's a trope. Yes. But, uh, I'll admit the one, the one flaw in my argument is I do think that I am informed the last 20 minutes when he is this like, yeah, like this, like fire elemental, uh, he's real. He's he's mad. Uh, he's uh, he's he's. You could even say he's ticked off. Uh, oh, he's teed off. Some part of me, some part of that argument is based on, ironically, uh, after what we were talking about earlier and how annoyed we are that people try and make this into a connected universe, uh, is because uh, the sequels begin with him as this road elemental, as this guy who just like he's nothing but fury and forward momentum and anger and survivalism, and like the idea that he was destined for that, that he was always supposed to become that, and that uh, weirdly enough, fate saw his family as like an obstacle that it needed to smash down a speed bump uh so to speak uh as as uh, crude as that is uh is is like really like i can't get that that kind of argument out of my head that this movie is like an origin story for what would come and that max was always faded to the road and this is a movie of him giving up his last ditch effort to push off the road yeah i guess that may just be a little bit informed by the order two that you saw these movies in where i mean i get it like and i'm I'm not like assuming this is true but i also understand like road warrior is such it's kind of like evil dead 2 like a lot of people saw evil dead 2 first and then went back to evil dead and found a lot of things to enjoy out of it but see it as more of a movie that informs evil dead 2 more than its own thing and i saw it as like since I saw this one first and had no conception of the Road Warrior, I didn't have those like uh, those imprinted ideas of 
kind of that iconic star-making Mad Max performance that occurs in The Road Warrior. So in the same way that, like, Evil Dead 2, I think, is a perfect example, because, like, I probably find more things funny about Bruce Campbell's performance in Evil Dead based on knowing what's happening, going to happen in Evil Dead 2 and, like, how he heightens a lot of that stuff than was actually, like, initially intended to be funny in the original Evil Dead movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, what do you, what do you, Adam Dustin? What do you make about like this as like a origin story, or do you place this kind of separately from the rest of the movies? Like, no, do I you, think it do, was, no, I think it was just meant to be a standalone movie. I, I think, I think for sure it was meant to be, but the fact of what it became and and how the quote unquote sequels um, behave made it feel like an origin story to me, an unintentional origin story. I mean, like. In some sense, let's talk about a one-off movie that this also reminds me of that's not Australian, it's not apocalyptic, but it is about a man and his love for the road is uh, Lightning McQueen in Cars. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Is a driver in the movie uh, Drive. And the end of Drive is very similar to the end of uh, this, where... Um, oh man, spoilers he, for a movie I haven't seen Drive. <laughs> <laughs> but let's just say without getting too deep into the drive the drive area, even though everyone must have seen Drive by now, um is is uh Peter is the movie Peter, can you hear me on my ghost? I haven't seen Drive. <laughs> Slow down, you're gonna crash. <laughs> Peter's been seduced by the road. <laughs> I've been seduced by the road, all I can see is the road. White lines, white lines. Um is is uh that that's also a movie about someone getting seduced by the road and and we sort of see uh him it's not so much an ending so much as a um a continuation of that sort of uh road elemental that sort of person that's always destined for this and that's a movie that is not connected to any sequels it's uh, uh only god forgives is not a sequel um and that's a movie that feels like oh, enough, an origin story for yeah I've it feels drive. like an or, it feels like an origin story sorry i thought you were talking about some 70s movie of course i've seen drive yeah yeah oh, no it's Lord. good not the driver yeah no spoil away uh but uh yeah but i i, I said what i want to say uh oh, I, I wanted was, to say it i, I, I wanted to say it vaguely i have um, no idea what peter's talking about considering that um I don't remember his name, but uh, the protagonist of Drive His Throat gets cut so- semi-willingly no, by Albert Brooks. No, he so... doesn't. He... <laughs> no, he gets stabbed and then he gets behind the car and he drives. Oh. Oh, okay. I remembered it wrong. <laughs> it's fine. Here, you just, movie it came out like, what, eight years ago? You have to remember the thing that helps you remember what happens in Drive. It goes, here in my car, I feel safest of all. I can lock all my doors and I won't get stabbed by Albert Brooks. The <laughs> um, so, so actually it's the inverse. The driver kills Bernie and, Oh God, this is, this is coming full circle in a way I don't like. Um, <laughs> so kill Bernie. The driver kills uh, Bernie in the throat. He stabs Bernie in the throat. And then uh, he, he uh, abandons the money and just gets in the car and uh just just uh drives off into the night and he's sort of he, his fate is tied to the road and that's that's a movie that feels like an origin story turn nothing i feel like that's a really good call out the big difference is, is that i think it would be a little like like ryan gosling's only thing he has in his life in that movie is driving uh if ryan gosling then like went home and was like oh hey honey hey kid like i just feel like it's a little bit of a 
different situation. And it's not like Mad Max seems disinterested in his family too much in this movie. But I do, I 100% agree that, like, even though Drive is a standalone movie, I it, it feels like an origin story for a uh, potentially a bigger scope that just obviously in that movie didn't happen. But I do agree that even though the, the only thing that matters is like the Mad Max characters between movies, like what's, what's so fun about these movies that even though Mad Max was conceived as a standalone movie, Road Warrior does feel like a natural blowing up an extension of the universe into this big giant thing that does sometimes confound people having read a ton of letterbox reviews yesterday when they go back and go huh the road warrior came from this dustin you called it an acorn that like led to you know fury road and you saw a lot more dna in the road warrior than you did in mad max and i think that does make sense because when you go back they're just so different but on the same note, it does feel like having watched him like in order and stuff like that. It does feel like the natural. Like where else are you gonna go? You go to the full on apocalypse. There's no like you fast forward a few years, and now you have this guy with nothing to live for who does only have the road because everything else was taken from him. Well, though, Dustin, let's talk about let's talk about the shot that you love so much, which is this this creepy shot of like just the empty road. Um, because it's not there's, empty there's like some light at the end yeah there's uh there's there's a lot of like uh insanely beautiful photography uh, especially in the last like 20 minutes when the movie becomes like razor pointed there's no subplots left it's just max and toe cutter and there's a lot of gorgeous photography of like the road and it and it's so stripped down and so bare and actually a couple of different actors passed up the role of max before mel gibson got in the door uh because they said that the there was uh not enough there was there wasn't enough dialogue um and george miller basically said i might have said this in a later interview i don't know if he said it originally when the movie came out that he wanted to make like a silent movie with sound which later when we'll we talk about uh wrote uh fury road like and there's literally like cuts out there that just that take out the dialogue and at and uh just make it a movie um you know like a the, just keep the score the amazing score that, that that makes sense to me because so much of the movie is this minimalist uh visual filmmaking that's about like simple images but really potent simple images uh that uh it it uh it it feels like poetic in a way it doesn't feel noisy at all it's the music of that. It has the sort of Bernard Herrmann's flavor to it, but the the music by Brian May. It, it's surprising that this song about motorcycle gangs and crooked and semi crooked cops in Australia. All the music is either classical stuff that sounds like it could come out of the longest day, or it's jazz. The the reveal of Max feels like a TV moment. It feels like they're revealing like the other Knight Rider. Um, yeah, because he steps out. They, they they don't show him for the first fifteen minutes of the movie, basically. Um, maybe longer actually. I feel like Max doesn't enter into the movie. The chase that that kicks everything off. Uh, Max isn't part of it for the first like ten minutes of it, and then he becomes part of it. And then maybe I don't know, fifteen twenty minutes into the movie, he he shows uh, Mo Gibson's very handsome young face. Um, and the great scene too, where he like stumbles. Yeah, sorry, that's what you're yeah. gonna say. 
he like steps up and he's face and his face comes in a frame and he's got that like Mel Gibson thing where like it's just the like movie star energy where like he can say a million things without saying a goddamn thing. Um and there's a music cue that sounds like it's from like yeah like a 60s to 80s tv show where they're like here's the hero um <laughs> yeah so it's a very weird score very I weird score trouble understanding the logic that he was just staying back there like the neg Ryder's playing a video game and he's trying to get to the final boss or something <laughs> like, like why isn't he going down to help his fellow officers especially since he apparently has one of the few souped up engines that would help him catch the guy i think it's um i think it's it's probably a situation where like he he's like sitting auxiliary and he's watching his stretch of road and then like oh shit things are really serious oh. I, you gotta call in the big guns i mean obviously it doesn't it doesn't make sense it doesn't make that much sense in terms of like pragmatics but like in terms of drama it's amazing right like the moment when they finally release the beast feels so good Do, did he like block the road with a few vehicles i need to <laughs> what what does the night rider run into that causes his eyes to bug out like that uh no it was a bunch of like barrels of gasoline <laughs> right like so so with, uh, with here's you don't know that much about i know you know a lot about trains but you probably don't know much about uh, about gas trucks uh when <laughs> they carry specifically barrels of, of gasoline <laughs> when you crash into that and explode the force is so strong uh, it causes a reverse implosion that occurs inside you that pushes your, <laughs> pushes your eyeballs out at essentially the speed of light. And I think Adam, as a scientist, could probably confirm this right now. Uh, also, meth. Sorry, I'm waiting for the scientific, uh, scientific community. Yeah, sorry, just you the numbers and... Uh, yes, correct. Can, can, we, can we also talk about, before we get too far along, because I think we're approaching the end probably... Um, <laughs> too far along we gotta stop uh, doing these like recaps an hour and a half into the movie like yeah. so hey in case you're wondering what we talked about it was the following movie good night <laughs> <laughs> i i want to talk about uh because i think we're kind of approaching the end is uh the 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 true through line to george miller's filmography so right he's he's someone that's willing to get the camera into seemingly dangerous places to get his shots uh you know similar to friedkin of this era but i doubt he put his crew at risk the way friedkin did um and he's 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 uh he shoots these movies in a sort of yeah like a uh, very visual way where like uh, nobody is saying, oh, he's going too fast. Like, there's no dialogue in there that's, um, that's, that's communicating that. He just uses the, he just uses the camera to tell the story of what the cars are doing, which, like, sounds super simple. Uh, but a lot of filmmakers, like, need to, like, create a feeling of a sensation of speed in other ways. The, the real through line to all these movies is, uh, that Australians are really weird. And these movies, what makes them so such an interesting mix is that there's this lean, mean simplicity that we were just talking about, matched up against a uh, fucking weirdness, just just really strangeness. Like the little kid playing with a gun was something we referenced, but like the fact that we're introduced to Knight Rider and he's giving this insane speech that I tried to recreate earlier, um, that is like, isn't he quoting something? Uh, ACDC uh, song, I think. Uh, rocker, I believe. 
or personally quoting you. And that's like, that's sort of like meth energy with like that sort of crazy, like meth energy is like standard now, especially with like the directors by the, the, the like crank movie directors and like these sort of music video inspired yeah. post 90s Everyone stuff. yells now. Yeah. <laughs> But this sort of like uh, chaos energy style <laughs> screaming and weirdness and like the fact that this is a post-apocalyptic movie where we're introduced to a um, the sidekick to Mad Max who's like eating eating at a diner and like talking to some guy about like how like some guy feels sick because he's telling him such a gross story and then the guy starts eating his food and then the guy's like running for his motorcycle with like an english muffin and then just tosses it behind his shoulder like <laughs> that sort of weird moment-to-moment comedic energy or just strange energy is really what makes this movie sing for me because like lean simplicity i can get that in walter hill movies and such but the lean simplicity paired with just like wait what the fuck did that guy just say is uh is what, what i'm here for yeah and i mean if you live in australia all that stuff is completely normal and walter hill movies are odd like did that guy just order a hot dog no (laughs) thank you what a bunch of weirdos uh yeah no i think it's a really good call out there is didn't you like find out that there was something about uh the signs i mean there is a sign for milk bar (laughs) (laughs) the the road signs uh anarchy bedlam those are legit road signs. Apparently. Yeah, I mean, That's why like, in the place you need to be safest? Why not just fucking name all your streets after complete chaos? So <laughs> <laughs> why, let, yeah, just let kids run in them. Like there's, there's <laughs> two kids under the age of two who are in the middle of the street in this movie. Fifty <laughs> percent of them survive. <laughs> um. There's a couple moments I do want to call out. So I do like that. I don't like it. But we do get a little glimpse of who Mel Gibson is as a person, I think, in this movie. So uh, Goose, who is basically the star of the first half of this movie, is horribly burned. And Max goes and visits him in the hospital. And the you'd think, based on everything that happens, that Goose is dead. And he is not dead. He is just badly burned and in like some sort of like chamber, probably, to protect his burns. Max runs out of the hospital with the chief going like, you should stay here for your friend Goose. And Max replies, that thing in there is not Goose. Like, oh, like he just has some skin. Like he got burnt. Like he's still Goose. Like it's kind of gross to look at. But the idea that he's like, nah, he's a thing now. He's not a person anymore. I'm out. Yeah, the Goose gets real loose, but he's still the Goose. He's still the goose, even if his skin's loose from his fourth degree burns. I don't know. Um, <laughs> his goose was cooked. His goose is cooked. There you go, Dustin. <laughs> you are awake. I like that Mad Max just decides he's not a human being anymore. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I'm out. Uh, and then the other thing is that this movie has inspired a lot of things. One thing that we didn't really talk about, there's that scene where the gang first pulls over uh, that couple and obviously commits some atrocities to them. Uh, but before they do that, they um, take out like, uh, you know, fists and pipes and axes. And there's like a couple of minutes scene of breaking every part of the go- car. And that scene inspired the bonus level for Street Fighter 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's like Miller being tasteful or like s- somehow making some sort of statement on the importance of cars? Uh, I think he just had, he had the one car he could break, and he wanted to break all of it. 
Oh, I he think broke he, a lot of he, cars. <laughs> he cuts away from the rape scene before it happens, and he cuts to vultures. Uh, very subtle filmmaking, and um, he. Uh, so he's like mm, not really interested in a rape scene, but you want to know no. a, a real tragedy: a car getting smashed. <laughs> I mean, I think to- I think it's I, like 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 Dustin said, like this does have an implied rape scene. Uh, I think it's explicit. I mean, we see a guy bleeding from his anus. Like, I, I, I'm amazed that got in and back at this period. So I didn't catch that. Um, and I'm not I, sure um, why. I was watching on standard well, DVD, when he's so running, I can't When he's wait. running through the field before they come across the... Yeah, I, the I mean, I saw, I saw blood. I guess I didn't connect it. I'm not saying that that's not... Um, that's not what happened, but I do th- like we see the after effect, but it's not like um, a lot of the canon stuff, like where it's like let's use rape to g- give an excuse to show nudity. Like it's impactful, no, we don't see- it's taken serious. Like it's not exploitive when they like. There's not like a extended scene. They cut away. They show the aftermath of like the level of uh, violence, and they definitely show the level of of trauma when they arrive. Yeah. On the scene. So, uh, yeah, it's um, one of the few, especially, like, 70s low-budget movies that has a rape scene that's not immediately, like, uh, it's still brutal and it's after uh, imagery, but it's not, like, immediately, like, a, oh, God, please pass, please release a cut that deletes this. Like, it's, it's, it's doing what it's supposed to. It's effective. It's not exploitive. It's good. I'm su- for this. Okay, so they probably could have not had a rape scene, but for this era to have an off-screen rape scene, yeah, that's what I mean. it. It's as close as you were going to get to not having a rape scene. This is the this is the exploitation era. This is the and era of a, Death Wish. And to have a man raped and not played as a joke—that's got to be like unprecedented. Oh my god! It's, I feel like it's like five movies before two thousand five. <laughs> it's so tough to say because I just I feel like. I don't know how long I want to talk about this. This could maybe be the last thing. Maybe I'll edit this out. But, like, I think, like, it's just so overused now as, like, a, oh, if I want to add stakes, I'll throw a rape scene in. Um, and and then before that, in these types of movies, it was used primarily for titillation. I feel like society is crumbling. Things are getting worse and worse stumbling along this gang that hasn't just like beaten people up hasn't just killed people but like one person is chained to a car the other person is like like you said like in a field does kind of speak to the thematic thing of like a bunch of people holding on to societal rules that are like far beyond like have have almost like crossed the point of no return so in a way it's less bothersome to me also just because like yeah, it it does serve a very important story point. Like when all the cops arrive on the scene, they're not like, "Oh, the gangs are at it again." They're like, "Oh, holy!" Like there is a true moment of everyone like not even knowing what to do. Like Goose grabs the leash and is like, "Uh, can you?" Like he doesn't know how to process this, and then like partially through that realizes like, "Oh, am I pulling this leash?" That's a fucking crazy, and like, kind of drops it. It's like, wait, wait, no. I mean, like, there is this level of like unable to even like process what they're seeing while like being there to help. It's done well, and and is kind of it does serve a very important, I think, story point that is again to kind of go back to what we said at the beginning. Like, the reason I really like this movie 
I do probably like I'll confirm it next week, but I do probably I'll probably come on the side that Road Warrior I like more. But the reason I really like this is it is slowly showing the audience how bad things have gotten and our main characters haven't accepted it. That is that is uh, actually a good leading in point to what some final thoughts. Like my final thoughts. Do you want me to yeah. get to my yeah, final thoughts? We could yeah. do that. My final thoughts in the movie. Um the fact that this movie actually treats uh, a sexual assault somewhat respectfully and cuts away and sort of treats it as like um, uh, more of like a, a plot point than a point of, you know, titillation, which is not true of movies of this era, especially uh, this movie comes. I, obviously, it, uh, you know, it's a it helped kick off a sort of post-apocalyptic uh, binge uh, of movies. And that's in some sense never stopped. Um just slowed down the fact that that sexual assault scene was handled somewhat subtly uh is uh interesting because the movie it it speaks to what the movie is the movie is is for a movie that's about fucking fast cars going fast is lean it is mean it's not about it's under 90 minutes it's not about uh uh excess and getting as many crashes in your face as possible it's about working making more with less and uh a lot of movies uh are you know have small budgets and less feels like less uh the the leanness of mad max gives it a sort of like iconographic iconographic strength to me like uh, the, the movie stands out from an era that's full of movies that are just like this movies you know, with more car crashes and more shootouts and bloodier shootouts, um, bloodier car crashes uh, and uh, more topless women and more, you know, craziness. This this stands out as a sort of like a uh, singular iconic myth, a sort of monolith, uh, which is uh, it, it's it's uh, it's lucky that the series started off on such a such a powerful note because. Uh, it'd be kind of strange if it was just like a sort of dry run for what would come. Uh, the way I feel about, you know, some of my favorite directors have, I think, like a dry run. Um, John Carpenter, I don't think Dark Star is a very good movie, but it feels like a dry run for what would be. This doesn't feel like a dry run. It feels, weirdly enough, like he used the simplicity for as, as a benefit. Um, and he didn't uh, cheapen the, the whole experience by throwing in a bunch of nonsense we didn't need. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm really excited for the rest of this month because I ended up appreciating this movie far more than I remembered appreciating it the last time I saw it five, ten years ago, whenever it was. Um, but yeah, Dustin, Adam, what do you, what do you got on this? Going back to what was said kind of near the beginning, I'm really glad that he made the movie and that it was successful because it really did help kind of introduce Australian films to a wider audience because it was so successful. We saw like a little bit of kind of Americanized dub that was, oh boy. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason for that was that they thought that the Australian accents were just unintelligible to American <laughs> audience at the time. And we kind of, Mad Max kind of helped introduce a lot more media and entertainment between us and Yeah, he, I'm sure that there's no Crocodile Dundee without Mad Max. And there's... Oh, well, in that case, I fucking hate Mad Max. 
I've never seen Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I've weirdly <laughs> only seen Crocodile Dundee 3. But we was, we was Mel Gibson? I, I Maybe I'm not old enough. Was Mel Gibson like uh, sort of the Australian export that helped kick off like a sort of American fascination with uh, Australia that led to like, you know to bad stuff like Crocodile Dundee, but also great stuff like Steve Irwin. No, I'd say I'd say Miller became a star director before um Mel Gibson became a movie star. So I I'd say it's more Mad Max that was the that was launched than it was it was more Mad Max it's the series than Mel Gibson, the star that was launched at that point. Yeah, also, Mel I didn't Gibson... grow up with Mel Gibson, Australian star. I grew up with Mel Gibson, like uh, American hunk, <laughs> like because his American accent got good so fast that I think I just I think that wiped out people's uh, connection with Australia. Yeah, it Dustin's hundred percent right though. Like Australian cinema as a whole started to get noticed. So you have these some of those directors I talk about that kind of then start working the Hollywood system, and then like. Really, what's funny is that even though I agree that like Crocodile Dundee probably wouldn't have existed without Mad Max because that was such a boon to the Australian film industry as a whole, it's not Mad Max specifically that or any or Mel Gibson that kicked off the Australian like love fest. It was Crocodile Dundee, like that was where it really blew up. But like, which is sad. <laughs> I mean, um, but here, but like uh, Mel Gibson's a really great example of like so the movies that you've heard of that he's done are Mad Max. The Bounty, that Anthony Hopkins like remake of uh, Mutiny and the Bounty, Anthony Hopkins is a star, and then two Peter Weir movies like Gallipoli and or Gallipoli and The Year of Living Dangerously, and all those happen pre nineteen eighty seven. It's then eighty seven that it's uh, Lethal Weapon. There's even a two year gap. He doesn't do any movie after Beyond Thunderdome until Lethal Weapon, and then it's like then he explodes. But that's like post the momentary australian or uh, american obsession with australia after crocodile dundee in like 86 so i think by the time lethal weapon hits he's just like oh i guess he's an american superstar now yeah and also i mean uh i earlier i mentioned that mel gibson uh has like a really had a great american accent um, yeah mel gibson spent the first 12 years of his life in america before moving to australia yeah so, like that kind of like i said he wasn't born there that's so, why like, he's five we... foot ten we like uh, the American public readopted, um, readopted Mel Gibson as an American. So I, I, yeah, maybe he's not even part of the story at all because people yeah. forgot after Road Warrior, people just forgot that he was Australian because he would started showing up in shit like Lethal Weapon, um, just a full on, uh, full on American accent that doesn't sound off at all. Uh, yeah. So Adam, did we? Sorry, did we get both of your guys' final thoughts? Uh, I, I, I. Mine, more or less, which was largely stealing from yours at, at the beginning. All of it, but. <laughs> yeah, Dustin, do my, you have any my, final thoughts to throw in? Like, why why'd you guys jump on this this one? My final thought of it is um, Miller's secret weapon was that he took what's essentially a Western in new clothes, as he called it, and he played it straight. Leather daddy but he played it, But he played it straight with an Australian-ness. Like, yeah. As he said, there's all the there's all these weird names, all this weird stuff, this society that full, that's full of nutbags, like just the name Rockatansky. Uh, Adam looked that up. He was named after a real doctor who, what was his thing? He kind of invented a mean autopsy method of taking out how the organs are removed. 
Right. So to an Australian, that's like regular dignified life. <laughs> and it's plain straight being named Rockatansky. <laughs> Even though that, that sounds like it should be the name of a hero in a B serial. If he had a try to like play up the goofiness or the silliness i think it wouldn't be it would be too much and it would just be dated and terrible but it became the such a distinctive and such a just slightly off enough that you that it sticks with you piece that and no wonder it could find an audience around the world yeah and it's so funny because all three of you, I believe, basically said they saw Road Warrior first, or, like, that was their first memory. Absolutely. And when yeah. I went and, like, did, you know, a lot of people have seen this movie on Letterboxd, and I read all of their reviews, and it's a very small, extremely curated sample size from who I follow on Letterboxd, but almost everyone... <laughs> who at least wrote a review about it, was either catching up pre-Fury Road or, like, going back to this after, like, loving the Road Warrior and Fury Road. Like, I didn't see a review that was, like, based on someone seeing this in the order it came out. And that's why I think, comparatively, it reminds me so much of the Evil Dead series. Like, most people I know saw Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness and then, like, went backwards. And this is a strange movie, I guess, compared to how a lot of people in my generation saw it, in that I ended up seeing it in the order they came out. So I didn't have these, like, preconceived notions of what the Road Warrior was, let alone something, like, as amazing as Fury Road. I just knew, the only thing I knew is that uh, they were well-regarded, uh, or the first two were well regarded, and the third one was terrible. Like that was the line that I knew going into this. It's why it took forever to watch Beyond Thunderdome because why even buy it if it's just the terrible bad third sequel that then they quit making them. It was so bad, which is you know how I thought about it at the time. And so I I really like ended up falling in love with this movie in a way that wasn't the oh that's interesting where everything came from. But was this, like, it was odd because it was, again, not odd in Australia probably, but odd because it it felt different to me because of all those Australian-type details. And that made it, that added probably a little bit to my already uh, perception of why I liked it, which is, like, man, this this kind of apocalypse is a slow burn instead of, a, uh, instead of an explosion – and all these strange things are happening. So it, it it gave me a full sense of just oddness and removal from society as a whole. And again, part of that's intentional. Part of it is probably just, yeah, I don't know why they have milk bars. I've never seen a milk bar. Was that a post-apocalyptic way to get milk? Or were, is that just a thing in Australia? I don't know that now. I definitely didn't know that at 19... But seeing a place that had a town that like had four things and one of them was a milk bar gave me a sense of something that was removed from what I was used to. And then, of course, this we didn't really talk about this that much, but having not seen it in 15 years, I forgot when his wife and his kid dies. Obviously, I knew that was going to happen. But the whole back half of this movie is like five times where I was like, fuck this wife and kid are going to die. And then they get right here. This is the scene where it happens. And it doesn't. They keep getting out of it. It even becomes 
uh, almost like straw dogs for a little bit, where like Mel Gibson's going out with a gun to defend his house while the gang has showed up um, already to wreak, and, wreak havoc. Um, and the tough old lady, who's awesome. The tough old lady is very good. But I'm sure when I saw it the first time, like, I, it seems like the wife and, and the kid and Mad Max keep getting out of scrapes. Like, I, I didn't know what, ha- what happened in the Road Warrior. Um, and so I, I imagine I didn't know that the, that his wife and his kid were going to die. Didn't have spoilers for it or anything like that. And it seems like they keep getting close to these situations and they get out at the last second. That's what happens for the full back half of this movie after he quits the force. I I do remember that, like, scene was, it was pressed in my memory of something that, like, took my breath away when I saw it at 19. And even now, forgetting when it happened or what the exact moment that caused it was, like, I was impressed at how affecting it is. The arc of these exploitation, revenge type movies is usually something happens in the first act and then it goes from there. And this is such an oddly structured movie where his revenge like you you assume for the most part if so, if someone makes it to the third act they're either dying at the very end or they're not going to die. And instead it happens like almost when you least suspect it and it is just so affecting. And so, yeah, I just loved all of this movie to the point that when I saw The Road Warrior, again, maybe the only person on the planet that I was like, oh, that's good. But it's a little bit of a step down from Mad Max. So um, it was so much fun revisiting this. I'm so excited for the rest of the month to be able to watch all uh, the rest of these movies again, even though I'm probably not going to fall that this is better than The Road Warrior. It's obviously not better than Fury Road. I do hope that people like rediscover this movie as not just like the seed that gave us these other movies, but as like its own really awesome thing that um, I feel like gets kind of short shrift in the in the Mad Max canon. The fact that it, do- yeah, I think you're right. The fact and the fact that it isn't structured the way the other three movies are, uh, kind of lends credence to that. Like it feels like it's a own unique little thing. Yeah, it's like Bob Baker, who was one of the writers of Wallace and Gromit, said of the of their um, cartoons about a man who likes to eat cheese and his dog in a very specific community in Sheffield. It's totally specific and therefore universal. Yeah, that's a great call out. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, uh, Dustin, Adam, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And I'm glad uh, we're not going to have to wait a year and a half for you guys to come back because we'll save the actual movie and the the theme uh, for a later announcement. But you guys are already booked for next month. So we'll be talking to you guys again very soon. In the meantime, what do you guys have? to plug except besides excitement of the three week old now news that Bernie Sanders won the New Hampshire primary. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote a book with Jonathan Wojcik, also known as Bogleach online. He was one of uh, my fellow writers at crack for a while. It's we're tentatively entitling it the real ghost world. It's about in the future Everybody and everything is dead. A ghost society has sort of risen from the ashes, but it's very loosely connected because everybody's a ghost. They don't have bodies. They can still fade into wisps if they don't define themselves, who they are, what they do. But one day, 
somebody sees the first living creature in century. How can they prove it to everybody else? It's wherever quality books are sold. I like that Dustin is such a good plugger that he's like, in case he edits out the first plug, I'm going to do the full plug at the end as well. <laughs> well, you asked me to plug it again. It's a good no, pitch. I appreciate it. It's a good pitch. And now okay, I get to you. decide which one I want to leave in. A lot of editing okay. decisions, which I also appreciate. Adam, what else do you have still, to plug? Still got nothing. Sorry. Oh, I assumed you were working on a book in the <laughs> in the silences no. in between a recording today. Um, next no, time, he's just uh, Peter. But you and I have a few more of these. We're going to be doing some more Mad Max related movies about <laughs> Mad Max. What a fucking dumb way to say that. Anyways, uh, yeah, we're doing more <laughs> Mad Max. We're doing all of them actually. Hundred percent of the Mad Max movies. Uh, and next week we have the Road Warrior with returning guest. Bill Fox, Peter's brother-in-law, and I thought about saying that a grosser way, and I'm not gonna, but that's who's joining us, who, um, <laughs> I thought about it, that's why I slowly said it. Wait, do you because have I'm, to get credit for not doing something gross? Yeah, I mean, you don't know what level of grossness, it could have been like, but there was a different way I was gonna introduce him, and then I slowly decided not to. And it's not like I feel like, here's the thing. I don't think it would have bothered you. I feel like it would have grossed out our listeners more than I was comfortable with. <laughs> so uh, it's one of those weird things where it wouldn't offend any related party, but no. just not just anyone outside the relationship. Just, yeah, someone that could be listening would be like, is that okay? Because I don't like it. Um, so I get it. So I didn't say it. It's just your brother-in-law. It's great. I'm excited to have him back on. When he booked this episode... Back in December, a couple weeks later, he messaged us and said he was worried he was going to get sick of the movie because he had watched it six times to prepare three months ahead of time. So who knows? He's going to have, I assume, a lot to say about The Road Warrior or hasn't watched it recently and forgot it all. Either way, I'm excited. And then Amanda Lett is going to be joining us for uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, She was quick to point out. That she joined us for uh, our, our episode on Wolf's Creek. So she's excited to be talking about weirdo Australian stuff again. <laughs> and then we're wrapping up the month with uh, Joseph Finn joining us for Mad Max Fury Road. And part of the reason we asked Joseph to be on is that when we did our first best of year episodes, which Joseph has joined us for all four in 2015, uh, all three of us had Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, as our number one pick of that year. And uh, because it was the end of a uh, recording session, we had a lot to say about that movie and didn't get a chance to talk much about it. So a few years later, now that we're actually doing the movie itself, uh, he's coming back to talk to us. So, yeah, this is one of those months where I'm really happy I have the Blu-ray set. I'm super happy I have a projector to watch them all on. Uh, I am just so excited to get into the next movie because it's going to be a really fun month. Even if it started uh, out with a real downer, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like I feel like we've got a lot of uh, fun stuff coming up ahead, and uh, we should let people go to bed so we can <laughs> get to it. People don't listen to this right before; like, no one's staying up late to listen to this podcast, Peter. Uh, no, just, it's just us. We're done recording at nine eighteen p.m. my local time, so that yeah. means everyone should start recording, start <laughs> listening to the episode uh, two hours before that. Around seven eighteen uh, PST, 
and uh, you should end at the same time that we stop recording. Uh, do yes. I want a Twitch stream? Is that what I want? <laughs> I think you just want to not do the podcast anymore. Uh, good night. <laughs> good night. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, It wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, (laughs) If you can't, (laughs) uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>